0: If you would take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6, John chapter 6. Today we're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000. This is also found in Matthew 14, if you're taking notes, Mark 6 and Luke chapter 9. We've been studying miracles and what they signify, what they mean. And we're doing so through the lens or through the prism of the miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. Thus far, we've looked at the turning of water into wine, the first miracle. Then healings requested by others or by some for someone else. And then last week, healings requested by the one who was in need. And I don't want to review all that we've studied, but instead mention the things that have stood out to me. Perhaps not to you, but the things that stand out to me. First of all, it's a place of conversation. Oftentimes initiated by a person other than Jesus, which on some level makes sense because they come to Jesus, they have something to say or something that they want to ask. On another level, it's somewhat surprising because as we've seen with prayer, prayer is a conversation that God initiates. He speaks to us and we respond in prayer. But if you consider that God initiated the conversation by arranging the circumstances of that individual's life, then in fact it makes sense. Um, Listen to what we read, or we find in John chapter 9 about the blind man. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, or this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. In other words, God had to arrange the circumstances of this man's life so that when Jesus comes into his life, he heals him. We've also seen that the conversation doesn't always begin with a request, which oftentimes I think may surprise us because we would think, no, they come to ask. But in fact, people come to Jesus and then they make a statement The leper who says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The centurion says, my servant is at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus says, I'll go. And the man says, no, I know that in fact you can do this. You just speak the word and it will be done. Then there is the intimacy of these healings, of these miraculous events. Jesus reaches out to the leper. He touches him and then he says, I am willing, be clean. I mentioned this last week, but one author put, the whole gospel is in that grasp. That is, Jesus touching a man who is considered unclean. This is the easiest of all the miracles to understand. Here is a man who, since becoming ill, has never been touched. Few acts would affect this constantly shun leper like this man's touching him. And in that touch, we have God's identifying love. Jesus touches him. This is not some impersonal force at work. This is very personal and very intimate. And then we looked at and we saw the nature of faith. In this area we've seen a number of things. I'll just mention two. And first of all, it is that faith does not demand something. It is modest. It is respectful. Um, It knows that, in fact, God can do something. It does not presume to say he must do something. But it knows, in fact, that he can. What we find is a combination of modesty or respect and confidence. So the leper says, if you want to, that is the modesty, that's the respect. The confidence is, you can make me clean. I know that, in fact, you can do this. And then we saw that faith, as we see in these miracles, is not exclusively individualistic. We can, in fact, have faith for others. in fact, we see this in a number of the miracles. Uh, The centurion has faith for his suffering servant. He tells Jesus, I believe, I know that you don't have to go to my house. I know that you can heal him. For the four friends, none of their conversation is recorded, but they believe that Jesus can heal their friend, and so they tear open the roof and lower him down so that Jesus can heal him. We can, in fact, believe for one another. And we should. And we have just done that, by the way, in our prayer, our prayer petition, when we pray for others. We believe for them. And this is very, this, this is contrary, I think, to what we hear today, where I must have faith. Yes, that's true. But sometimes I, I can't. I cannot. I struggle. Well, that's okay, because other people are having faith for me. Today we're looking at the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Besides the resurrection, this is the only miracle found in all four Gospels. It has been argued that it's one of the most significant miracles during the ministry of Jesus. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it is the most challenged of all the miracles in the Gospels. If you can successfully challenge the feeding of the 5,000, then in essence, you can sort of dismiss all the other miracles that Jesus did. Follow along, if you would, as I read. And we're going to read a lot of John uh, John 6, but we will do it in segments. First of all, the first 14 verses, John 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Galilee. Of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for all these people or for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men, all the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. As I mentioned at the beginning of this series, um, previous generations have pushed back against miracles. They have, in fact, challenged, they see them as unscientific and therefore suspect. They are unscientific because they cannot be duplicated, they cannot be measured. And if, in fact, you can dismiss the miracles, then you, the next step is you can, you can dismiss the supernatural altogether. And I've argued that this current generation, and maybe the last one, I think are much more open to the possibility of the miraculous. But to those who push back against what we find in the Gospels, it is this particular event, this particular miracle, that they take head on. I think in part because this is the one that they can challenge where the others, you, you, you simply say, no, that didn't happen. Whereas here, alternative, uh, alternative exp- uh, explanations are given. Different interpretations are presented. Two stand out in particular. The first is that this miracle is seen, in fact, as a fraud. This is a sleight of hand that Jesus pulled on these 5,000 people and, um, That in fact he and his disciples had had arranged something beforehand, and they hid a bunch of food in a cave. And then Jesus stood in front of the cave and said that with his flowing robes you couldn't see the entrance to the cave. And then the disciples would pass it to him, you know, and then he would say here, you know, and then then you know here's some more. Um, It's sort of like a magician, you know, pulling out an endless handkerchief. Um, This is what Jesus is doing. Sort of said. The other explanation or the interpretation is that this is not a, a physical miracle as much as it is an ethical miracle. That is to say, everybody actually had food, but they were holding out on each other. And so when Jesus gets up and he speaks, people are like, Mom, you know, Mother, <laughs> Jesus has got us. He, we're busted. We've got food. Come on, bring out the picnic basket and let's share if there are people who are in need. So this is seen as Jesus inspiring people to share with one another. Rather than a miracle of multiplication, it is seen as a miracle of generosity. Which would not be a bad miracle in itself, but that's not what we're told here. But there are problems with these interpretations. First of all, all four Gospels mention this. And two of the gospel writers, Matthew and John, were actually there. Secondly, the people, as we read in verse number 14, they saw the miracle and they said, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Before moving on, perhaps we should just think a moment about what a miracle is. This is something we looked at in connection in Nehemiah with the casting of lots. The religion of scripture, that is what we find in scripture, is a worldview, a a philosophy that ascribes all events to personal actions, not impersonal forces. So these events are, in fact, due to the personal accountable actions of agents within creation. One writer put it this way, God did not create a self-sustaining universe that is now left to operate in terms of autonomous laws of nature. The universe is not a giant mechanism like a clock which God created and wound up at the beginning of time. Ours is not a mechanistic world, nor is it an autonomous biological entity growing according to some genetic code of the cosmos. Ours is a world which is actively sustained by God on a full-time basis. If the universe is inescapably personal, then there can be no phenomenon or event in the creation that is independent from God. This is something known as cosmic personalism. We heard it as Gia read from Jeremiah. We sang it in the hymn, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. Um, We would say we know why the the moon shines full. It's because of the cycle and it's that time of the month and all that kind of stuff. No, the moon shines full at his command. This is cosmic personalism. It affirms that all things have their being and meaning in terms of the person and plan of God. It absolutely denies the possibility of self-sufficiency, autonomy for any aspect of the universe. All creation is subordinate to God. So, as another writer put it, the eternally active triune God brings all things to pass through his eternal activity, not through the establishment of impersonal processes. Baalism, that is the worship of Baal, on the other hand, is a religion philosophy that ascribes all events to impersonal processes on the part of impersonal forces, which may be mythologized as gods or goddesses. So we speak of gravity, We see it as an impersonal force that keeps us from flying off into space. Do we think that, in fact, God is at work every moment of every day, keeping us attached to the planet? Some would say the choice is personal versus impersonal. Uh, Cosmic personalism versus cosmic impersonalism, if you wish. Um, I actually would say that's not the case. Um, in both situations, someone is at work, and we either ascribe it to God or to another being. Miracles are not possible in an impersonal system. They simply are not possible because the system is seen as having laws. It's like a clock that's been wound up. You might have entropy where things are slowly winding down, but it's It's doing things in a particular way. And a miracle disrupts that. It is an offense to the principles, to the laws of nature, if you wish. No. A miracle, the way we should see it, is God acting in a way different from the way he usually acts. God is always working. He's always at work. A miracle is when he does something different than what he normally does. It's not God setting aside saying, oh, let me interrupt you for a moment. Let me interrupt this process with a miracle. It is God doing something differently. God is the eternally active God. The idea that we have impersonal forces at work, I think it's, it's so deeply seated in us. We are so modern. We are so scientific in our thinking that we think in terms of impersonal and not personal. Um, We think of laws, we think of principles, of processes. Um, The idea that God is always at work sounds so foreign to us. And I can remember years ago um, speaking about this and someone in the congregation violently shaking their head and saying, no, no. It's science. Science tells us this is the way that things work. Jesus said in John 5, my father is always at work to this very day. And I too am working. The question then might come up, well, if God is at work, then why do we have problems? For example, why do we have disease? And this is not an insignificant question and probably something that requires another sermon or series of sermons. Because of original sin, creation is broken. It is waiting for redemption. But in its brokenness, God continues to work. And we have the consequences of our action. Let's say that a child touches a hot thing and they burn himself or herself. We would say, well, if God is at work, why did the child burn himself or herself? Well, because that thing is hot. Um, God is at work but he is allowing in a way I think that's beyond our understanding for things to happen for the consequences of our action uh, to come after us and yet in many ways I would argue we don't suffer the consequences of our actions oftentimes because of God's grace God is so gracious Okay, let's get back to the feeding of the 5,000 the key to understanding this miracle is to know the Old Testament And I would argue, if you don't have the Old Testament, then you don't get what this miracle is all about. Otherwise, it's free food. You know, Jesus has got free food over here. You know, everyone come over, he's going to feed you. Simply not the case. You have to look at the Old Testament. And there are a lot of things to look at, but. I'll just look at three particular things. First of all, the idea of a miraculous supply of food is not a New Testament idea. We find this throughout the Old Testament. It's a recurring theme in the life of Elijah the prophet. There are at least two stories in this regard. The first one I remember being fascinated fascinated by when I was much younger as a kid. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah is fed by ravens. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. I I would see this as really quite unusual that God provides in a miraculous way for Elijah as he is hiding there at this ravine. Well, the brook dries up because it hasn't rained and so the Lord tells him to leave and we have the second miraculous supply of food. Um, So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she went to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it. And die. In other words, this is our last meal. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Again, a miraculous supplying of food. She doesn't run out of flour. She doesn't run out of oil. So when we come to John 6 and Jesus does this, this is a very Old Testament thing that he is doing. Miraculously supplying for his people. Um, Elijah's successor was Elisha, and we see this in his life as well. Second Kings chapter four, a man came from Baal Shalisha bringing the man of God, 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked, but Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he said it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Again, 20 loaves, it's, it's like what we find in the feeding of the 5,000. You have 20 loaves, but there is stuff left over. It, it feeds everyone, they have enough to eat, and there is food left over. So we see this in the life of the prophets. But I think the thing that should come to mind, and perhaps where I should have started, but is the whole story of manna that Israel is delivered but they are delivered out of Egypt into a desert and you can't there are no stores in the desert there's no food growing in the desert what are they going to eat the Lord said to Moses I will rain down bread from heaven for you the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day and this way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions so when the dew was gone thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. The people of Israel called it manna, which means what is it? It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. We'll come back to this in a bit. So you have in the Old Testament the idea of the multiplication of food. What you have with Jesus is on a much larger scale, but it has its roots in the Old Testament. It's not simply free food. The second thing from the Old Testament is the Exodus, the greatest redemptive act in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus into the world. It's a time in which Israel came to be a nation. They're delivered out of slavery, out of bondage um, by the power of God through 10 Plagues. We might say 10 signs, 10 miracles in which God, uh, through Moses, performs them and then Pharaoh lets them go. Moses leads them out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years to the promised land. This is important because of where Jesus is with these people. They are not near towns. They are, in essence, in the wilderness. Now, John does tell us that there's a lot of grass there, but there can be grass in the wilderness. So you have 5,000 people out in the middle of nowhere, just as you had Israel in the wilderness. And you may have caught this in verse number 4, just a a short statement there, that the Passover of the Jews was near. This isn't a question of chronology where you have uh, Passover, Exodus, manna. It is that these ideas are floating around. It's almost time for Passover. They're out in the wilderness. And then Jesus performs this multiplying of the bread. I think it's really important. I could reach a bit much. I don't want to go too far. But it is interesting to me. If you keep reading after verse number 15. The next story is of Jesus walking on the water. To the other side of the lake. Which is. Very much like Israel going through the Red Sea. But we'll leave it at that. The third thing we see is from what we looked at during our series on Advent that is God feeding his people. This is found in Ezekiel chapter 34. The leadership of Israel had failed to feed the people, had failed to take care of the people, and God says, in essence, I will do that. Um, and here I want to, I'll read it first in the NIV, and They use uh, shepherd or good pasture. And then I'll read it from the ESV, which in fact speaks of feeding. I will bring them from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. And I will tend them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land there they will lie down in good grazing land there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down declares the sovereign Lord I will search for the lost and bring bring back the strays I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak but the sleek and the strong I will destroy I will shepherd the flock with justice now let me read it to you from the ESV And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places in the city. And I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I would argue that this feeding of the 5,000 can be seen in the light of Ezekiel 34, God is feeding His people in this miraculous way. The big question, though is, how did the people who ate this bread, this miraculous bread, how did they see this? Did they see it as a miracle? What was their view of this? Um, well, we saw, they said, this is the prophet. Is this the prophet that was told us before? But look, if you would, at verse number 25, and I'll read a bit here, 25 to 36. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me because you saw the miracles, not because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him the Father, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you, then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Just stop here a minute. Didn't he just feed 5,000 of you guys? They want a miraculous sign. Verse 31, our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They make the connection with manna. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. This is, in essence, free food. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I have, as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. First, they see him as possibly being the prophet. Jesus is the prophet who is to come into the world. Secondly, they make a connection with manna. Yeah, this is like what happened with Moses and Israel in the wilderness But thirdly, they saw it as a free ride. Sir, from now on, give us this bread. This is how they viewed it, but this is not how Jesus viewed it. He saw the food as temporary. He recognized that that's why they were following him. They wanted the free food. They wanted the miraculous. He saw something being far more important, and that is the food that leads or that endures to eternal life. He is the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And here we have the conversation that must come with the miraculous. One in which the people who have experienced this miracle, imagine they have experienced, they have seen it with their own eyes, they have tasted this miraculous thing that has happened. But they refuse to accept Jesus. They refuse to embrace him as the Messiah. That is to say, they want the food that is provided But they don't want the theology. They don't want the commercial. Okay, give us the food and all the you know blah 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 that you're saying. That that's interesting, but we want the food. Jesus answers them and look if you would in verse 47. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, and I will give it for the life of the world. Again, they like the miracle. They don't see what it's pointing to, they don't see what it signifies. In fact, they're not really interested in what it signifies. And when Jesus explains to them what it signifies, they could care less. They are not interested at all. We saw this in the first sermon in this series. What did the miracle signify? That Jesus is God, that Jesus is human. This is a man who is giving them this food and that he is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. But many of the people did not see this. Look, if you would, in verse number 60. This is almost mind-boggling. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, saying that he is the bread of life, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. We'll see this again later or if you read, continue reading in the Gospel of John where those who are called the disciples of Jesus turn around and leave. They experience the miracle, they see it, they taste it, but they will not accept what it signifies, what it means. And they leave. This is a hard saying. Yeah. On a side note, we've talked about this before that you see a principle in the Gospel in John six, that the more open people are to the truth, the clearer it is. And the more that they turn away from the truth, the more it becomes obscure. So that it starts out fairly open, Jesus performs this miraculous thing, but by the end of John chapter six, Jesus says, Listen, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And even now, all these centuries later we struggle with this. But if you are open to the gospel, then the gospel is clear. And if you are not, then it's spoken in terms that are difficult to understand. And there are those who were following him who turned around and left him because they could not embrace what the miracle signified. It'd be one thing if John tells us, yeah, and some of the people who got fed, they left. I'm sure that happened. But John tells us those who were following Jesus, after he performs this miraculous sign, they want nothing to do with him. It's really quite amazing. Last Sunday we saw that the miraculous does not always lead to obedience. Jesus healed the blind men and told them, don't tell anyone. And then they went and blabbed and told everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Just because God does a miraculous thing doesn't mean that people will automatically obey. Here we see that a miracle does not always lead to faith in Jesus. Throughout history, there have been people who have said, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. To which we should say, no, you wouldn't. A miracle does not automatically lead to obedience and it does not automatically lead to faith it does not we need to see what the miracle signifies and what it means but many people are not interested they want to be healed but that's it they want their needs supplied but that's it and then in what at different points in my life has been a very moving passage there are those who did believe look at verse number 67 You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? Who else has the words of life? You do. Though they might not have fully understood what was going on, they did in fact believe him. In a way, we should be reminded of this miraculous sign every day. Is it not in the Lord's Prayer where we say, Give us this day our daily bread? It is God who supplies what we need. He did it for the prophets, for Elijah and Elisha. He did it for the Israelites with manna. Jesus did it here in feeding the 5,000. He does it for us every day. But what does it signify? What does it mean? He is the bread of life. Let's pray together. Our Father, I think we would push back against those who reject this miracle who come up with ridiculous explanations, at least through our way of thinking for how this happened. And yet we perhaps have failed to see what's really going on, that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one who sustains us, who has given us eternal life. Just as God sent down manna, he has sent his son. We should know this. When we pray, give us this daily, give us this day, our daily bread, we should be reminded that, in fact, is what you do. We are like most people, not all. We like the miracles. We like the signs. We're not particularly interested all the time in what they signify. Forgive us. Help us to see that they are merely a means to point us to the truth they signify something truly important, something that is true. I thank you that you do care about your creatures, your people. You have throughout history miraculously provided for them. And you do provide for us day after day. And we are grateful. Help us to remember and to see that you are personally interested in our lives. We see ourselves as pushed around by forces, by laws of nature. We don't see us as intimately connected to the Creator. May we be reminded of Jesus and the leper, how he reached out and touched him, You are there in our lives every step of the way. May your spirit drive these truths home to our hearts. May we think on them in their days to come. Again we pray for our brother Dan and look forward to him going home this week watch over him and Lonnie Give them strength and peace. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.